that they'd like to be a part of. Uh, we are interested in ensuring that the women in this church are able to participate in ministry, and we want to uh, see what we can do in that area. For those folks who are have no place else to go and don't want to cook Thanksgiving dinner at home, there's going to be a Thanksgiving dinner here at the church on Thanksgiving Day, November 28th at noon. There's a sign-up sheet on the back table. Uh, we've been here, we've done that one now, two, two years at least, I know, three. We've been here for it. It's very nice. So if you uh, don't have family here and you'd like to come and be a part of the Thanksgiving dinner here, sign up on the back table and, and come on in and, and have dinner here at the church with everybody that will be here. It's been a pretty nice crowd the last three years. It's been good. Okay, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a moment to take care of business there, and then I'll open us up with a prayer, and we'll get started talking about the book of Isaiah. Father, we do thank you so much for what Christ did for us on that cross so that we can come before the throne of grace when we're in him and confess our sins and be restored to fellowship with you. So we thank you so much that we forever have relationship with you once we place our faith in you. But by means of personal sin, we, we know that we can break that relationship and need restoration. And you have graciously provided us a way to do that through confession. So we thank you for those great truths that you have revealed to us in the word of God. Father, I pray for everyone here today. I pray for your blessing on their lives. I pray for your uh, accompaniment of them in the coming week so that we can walk with our eyes focused on Jesus and live our lives with a biblical worldview and be ever alert for opportunities to tell other people about Jesus Christ and the life-changing reality he can bring into their lives just as he did into ours. And I pray that you help us be alert for those opportunities. Father, we pray for our nation and, and the world, the state that it's in, and yet we know that you have a plan and a purpose uh, for the world, and, and it seems to be working out exactly like you revealed it in the Word of God, that it would be, and that should not be surprising to us, and we thank you for that. So help us to to realize that time is short and the need is urgent to to see people come to faith before it's too late and they have to go through some terrible troubles that are coming on the earth. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that we're able to study it here in this house, and we pray that it would ever be so in this nation. Uh, we know that there are danger signs about, but we intend to be faithful to do that no matter what is going on in the world and in our nation, and we pray that you give us the strength and the courage to do that. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to understand your plan for history as it's unfolding before us in this amazing book of Isaiah. Help us to study it well and to learn and to uh, apply it to our lives where it's applicable. So we thank you for your presence with us here this morning in this house as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the next uh, nation that, that Isaiah deals with here is Moab. Uh, Moab was established by the son of Lot, who was a product of that drunken liaison he had with his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in Genesis 19, and his wife was slain by being turned into a pillar of salt. That's recorded the, the uh -oh. why is my 
computer not working here? I'm not getting anything out of this. That's not good. You guys suggest, can I start over? Is that all right with you? Pull the plug on this thing and see what's going on. Yeah, okay. All right. Let's see what's. Okay. Genesis 19.37, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So Moab is located on the east shore of the Dead Sea with its western border, which is right here in this area, here right on the west side of the Dead Sea. Its southern border it seems to be right about the, the southern edge of the Dead Sea. And there's a river on its north border called the Arnon, which was kind of the border up there. It's really a very small nation, as we'll see in a moment. And, of course, now Moab doesn't exist as an independent nation today, but, of course, the area is still there. There are people still there and so forth. And this is, uh, it's in this area right in here in modern-day Jordan. Petra is clear down here if you've ever been there. So the river Arnon on the north and Zered on the south are the, are the boundaries on those sides of the nation. And the nation only encompassed about 30 miles by 30 miles, more or less at times, I suppose, or 900 square miles, which is small in terms of a nation's total territory. We have counties in the United States of America that are much larger than that. Uh, on the east, the border was somewhat ill-defined, but probably stopped where agriculture became no longer possible. And based on Isaiah 14:32, which says, nations will come to Judah seeking mutual aid covenants for protections, uh, many theologians believe that God is warning Judah not to align with Moab here, just as he warned them not to align with Philistia. And Moab and Philistia were were going to suffer the same fate. And after Moab was destroyed, the Moabites were going to seek refuge in Judah, but that was being discouraged by the prophet speaking on behalf of Yahweh. So there's an element of sadness in here, which is a little surprising, expressed by God, revealing a warm regard for Moab that was not present, present rather, in the prophecy of judgment concerning Philistia. So Moab and Israel... <laughs> Israel had contentious relations as far back as the Exodus when Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel as they traversed the area. Uh, during the Exodus, Moab refused to allow the Israelites to journey through their nation, and Israel was commanded not to make war with them because God had given Moab to Lot's son as his possession. That's in Deuteronomy 2.9. And because Moab refused to allow Israel travel rights through their land during the Exodus, they were not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord to the tenth generation. And the Moabite women enticed the Israelite men to play the harlot with them when they were on their Exodus wanderings and therefore rebel against God. And the Bible records a number of instances of warfare and the subjugation of one 
another to one extent or another throughout the history of the two nations up to the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests of Israel and Judah. Reuben and Gad, you'll recall, claimed some of the land east of the Jordan in this area up in, in here, which conflict caused some conflicts with Moab. So that set the setting then for some territorial disputes between, particularly between Israel and Moab. Uh, David completely sub subjugated Moab for a time, but after Solomon, Israel controlled Moab uh, only for a time. And then Eglon, king of Moab, subjugated Israel for 18 years during the time of Judges until Ehud delivered them, and you can read about that in Judges 3. So there were problems with the Moabites when the Israelites began their return to Israel after the Babylonian captivity, which you can read around in Ezra and Nehemiah. And Moab also had disputes with Ammon over territory, which is the area immediately north of Moab, right in here. Now, there were periods of time when the relations between Israel and Moab were not so contentious. Israel and Moab were related, of course, through Abraham's nephew Lot, but that doesn't really completely explain the somewhat friendly relationship because the Ammonites had the same relationship and the Edomites related to them through Esau, who was Jacob's brother, but they did not have friendly relations with Israel, those other nations. So I'm not sure why Moab was a little bit different there. Moab did sell the Israelites provisions at Ar when they were at the northern border of Moab prior to moving into position to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. And, of course, you might recall that Ruth was a Moabite woman who became an ancestor of King David, which placed her, of course, in the line of Messiah. Now, the god of Moab, Kamosh, made inroads into Israelite society in defiance of God's commandment. And the people of Moab were known as the people of Kamosh. And Kamosh was, of course, you might remember, a god of child sacrifice. Even Solomon built an altar to Kamosh, which was most likely an effort to placate the Moabite women and whoever else he married that believed in that God, and those, of course, that he used as concubines. But the Bible doesn't say that Solomon ever sacrificed any of his children on that altar, but the fact that he built it at least implies that he did, and it certainly implies that his Moabite wives and concubines used that altar for its intended purpose. Uh, Solomon's altar to Kamosh was not removed until Josiah destroyed that altar during the reforms that he instituted several hundred years later. So they had an altar to Kamosh in Israel for a very long time. And presumably the Israelite population was using the altar of Kamosh for its intended purpose as well. Now in 1868, a German missionary found a stella called the Misha Stone or the Moabite Stone. Uh, this stella was 3 feet 10 inches tall and 2 feet in width, and it contains 34 lines of text. And here's what part of it reads. Omri, Omri, of course, was the king of Israel. And it says, Omri was the king of Israel, and he oppressed Moab for many days, for Kamosh was angry with his land. And his son succeeded him, and he said, He too, I will oppress Moab. In my days, that's Moabite king talking, he did so, 
But I looked down on him and on his house, and Israel was gone to ruin. Yes, it is gone to ruin forever. Omri had taken possession of the whole land of Medeba and lived there in his days and half the days of his son, 40 years. But Kamosh restored it in my days. And I built Baal Ma'on, and he made it, and I made it into a water reservoir that I built at Kiriathaim. Now, 2 Kings 1, 1 and 3, 1 to 27 speak of this rebellion that this guy wrote about, but it did not result in the victory that this King Misha claimed for Estella. In fact, the Israelites prevailed. They tended to do that a little bit, to kind of make their defeats or less than successful things sound very successful. Eventually, though, this, this King Misha was able to extricate himself from being a tribute nation to Israel. Now, probably because the king's highway ran through Moab along its east side or west side, uh, making it a very strategic location, Moab was constantly under assault from other people, groups, and nations. And Arab tribes attacked them, and over time they were invaded by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They lost their national sovereignty in the 6th century B.C. and ceased to exist as a distinct people group by the 2nd century B.C. But, of course, they're still there to this day. Moab, the territory is still there. People, descendants of these people are still there in one way or another. And so they, they have never escaped whatever historical prophecy attaches to Moab. It still applies because it's still there in some form. Now, the prophet Zephaniah also predicted the destruction of Moab for their treatment of Judah, but it was couched in a short-term and long-term prophetical format. The conditions called for in this prophecy have never been completely fulfilled, and the context refers in part to the nations of the world and not just to Moab. And Zephaniah wrote this in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah's prophecy concerning the judgment of Moab then begins with the lament, which is in Isaiah 15.1. The oracle concerning Moab, surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Kir of Moab is devastated and ruined. Now, no one knows exactly when or what nation inflicted this destruction on Moab, although some attribute it to Assyria, which was a problem for Israel and the rest of the region during this period of Isaiah's ministry. So Assyria is the most likely culprit in terms of the preponderance of the evidence, I think. Uh, we do know that it was going to take place within three years of the prophecy because the Lord provided that timeline later in Isaiah 16, 14. Ar and Kir were the major cities in the nation here. Ar, meaning city, was located on the southern bank of the Arnon River, about 20 miles east of the Dead Sea, on what was the northern border of the country. And Kir was located at what is now Kirbet Karnak, or Karek. Sources are varied about that. 
although a cur current map indicates it may be Al-Karak, which is about 17 miles south of the Arnon and 11 miles east of the Dead Sea. So basically from north to south we're talking about here. And remember, it's a very small area. It's a very small country. Uh, Kir refers to Kir Haraseth, Kir simply meaning a wall or a fortified wall. And Kir was apparently the capital of Moab during this time. Now, that these cities would be destroyed in a night indicates the destruction would come upon them suddenly and the, the two mainstays of Moab's security would be gone. Kir was a rock fortress and the primary means of security for that nation. And these two cities represent the whole of the nation. So it's not just the cities that are destroyed. They're used as a representative of the whole. It's the whole nation that, that ends up being destroyed and under siege. The word devastate Shadad means to deal violently with, to despoil, or to devastate. So these cities were pretty well wrecked. It has a sense of complete destruction and irreparable damage. In the short term, this does not mean the cities could not be rebuilt, and they were. Cities were often completely destroyed and rebuilt right on top of destruction over and over again. And I have a picture here, if you can see it, that big mound straight back in the background is the tell at Beit Shan. That city had been destroyed so many times and rebuilt that it got that high, and it's very high if you, you're there and you look at it. And then eventually, of course, the Greeks and the Romans built that city down below that that you see the ruins of there. Very interesting place to visit if you ever go over there. So the meaning of the tells is that they are mounds consisting of layer on layer of destroyed and rebuilt cities. And the word ruined here is daman. It means to cease, to cause to cease, to cut off, or to destroy. So in, in terms of the sense being conveyed here, these two words are essentially synonyms, and the repetition is for emphasis. But what they're saying is that these cities were destroyed. They ceased to exist, at least for a time. Now, not unexpectedly, the effect of this devastation on the people is negative, in Isaiah 15, 2 to 4, they have gone up to the temple and to Debon and even to the high places to weep. Moab weighs, wails over Nebo and Medeba. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears. Heshban and Elialah, Elialeh, also cry out. Their voice is heard all the way to Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. So you see, we have a picture here of a really difficult time. They're being invaded. Their cities are conquered. Their territory is destroyed. And they're scared silly, which is a normal human reaction to all of this. People of Semitic origin, you know, you notice this description here of their, their grief. They're known for their outward displays of grief, and this description of the pronounced grief of the Moabites is an example of that. Weeping, wailing, shaving the head and the beard and wearing sackcloth are all examples of the ways that Near East culture displayed their grief. Even the armed men were grieving. Now, this I don't believe this refers to a standing army. This nation was pretty small. It refers to armed citizens, which represents the whole nation. They knew the extent of the danger and the destruction, and they were so frightened at the presence of the conquering armies that they grew faint-hearted. 
and no one wants an army, professional or militia, of frightened, faint-hearted troops, but that's what they had. And this fear will be universal. Everyone will be experiencing it. Their cries will be so loud that they will be heard from long distances away. It's a metaphorical, of course, but throughout the land, everybody is going to be crying and wailing. This armed men here is chalats, and it refers in this context to men equipped for war, to put on a warrior's belt, to gird or arm oneself, to make ready for battle, invigorate or make strong. It has a sense of taking up arms for battle or preparing for a general state of military readiness. And certainly this invading army was so much stronger than the Moabite defenders that they were quaking in fear. In those days, the men were expected to take up arms in defense of the nation. Remember during the time of judges, whenever they needed to go to war, they would issue a call to arms to all the various tribes to come and gather together. So at that time and place, a lot of the smaller nations probably had more of what we would think of as a militia rather than a standing army. The larger nations, of course, like Assyria and Babylon, it sounds to me like they had standing armies that they were professionals. And they also relied a lot on mercenaries. Now these people, these Moabites, resorted to their idols for comfort, but of course idols cannot provide comfort. They're deaf and they're mute and they can provide or do nothing to provide comfort to anyone. The Moabites would go up to the high places that pagans favored for worship. The word translated temple is baeth and it's actually the word for house, but it was not unusual to refer to a temple as a house and there was a temple to Kamosh on Diban. Now, some of the places mentioned here were in the disputed territory north of the Arnon River. There, so some would have been maybe in Ammon and some maybe in what Israel considered to be their territory. So they were, all, they were not all confined then to the territorial boundaries between the Arnon and Zered Rivers that I showed you earlier. And Nebo was close to Mount Nebo, which is the place of Moses' death north of the Arnon River. Nebo, Heshbon, Elialeh, and Jehaz were in the territory allotted to Reuben. And Debon was a city in the territory allotted to Gad. Zoar was south of the southern boundary at the south end of the Dead Sea in what was Edom and provided a place of refuge out of the country. And the location of some of these places is simply unknown. Nevertheless, this scripture reveals to us that they were in all of them to one extent or another, fleeing from this invading army. Now, the first part of verse 5 relates, I think, to the anguish that God expressed through the prophet at the judgment of Moab. And there's no reason to believe that probably Isaiah didn't feel the same way. But in just the very first part of Isaiah 15:5, it says, My heart cries out for Moab. So God has a heart for those people that is beyond a little bit, beyond some of the other people in the area, and, and I'm not sure why. As I said, the relationship with Lot doesn't seem to totally explain it because Ammon was also related to Lot in that way, and God didn't have that relationship with them. But the Moabite refugees then were a concern for God. So going on then in 5 through 7, his fugitives are as far as Zoar and Egloth, Shilashia, for they go up the ascent of Luhith, weeping, Surely on the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered, the tender grass died out. There is no green thing. 
Therefore, the abundance which they have acquired and stored up, they carry off over the brook of Aramim. So this word Eglath Shilashia means a three-year-old heifer or ox, which has led to some confusion. The King James Version translated these words, and heifer of three years old. The conjunction and is not in the text, and you notice back here I uh, crossed it out. Zoar and Eglath Shalashiah, I crossed out and. That's an addition the translators of the New American Standard put in the text. That, that conjunction is not in there. So because that's not in there, it looks to me like there's a suggestion here that these words have some relations to, to Zoar as though they're referring to the same thing. Uh, some theologians believe it's the name of a place or a city, meaning the third heifer. Other theologians believe it relate, refers to the strength and vitality of a three-year-old ox or heifer. It was a three-year-old heifer that was used as one of the sacrificial animals in the Abrahamic covenant ratification ceremony back in Genesis 15:9. It may be a reference to Zoar as a strong city worthy of harboring refugees. In that case, it would mean something like this, like Zoar, strong as a three-year-old heifer or oxen. And the Septuagint has that exact sense. It says, Zoar, for she is a three-year-old heifer. And the Tanakh reads, to Zoar, to Eglath Shalashiah, which suggests places, either the same one or two different ones. So what we do know is that the words do mean a three-year-old heifer, and they were meaningful to the original audience in relation to that definition and that place. The theological wordbook of the Old Testament uh, interprets it to indicate a place, Eglath Shalashiah. In terms of grammar, I, I believe it may look more like this. It may be Zoar, comma, Eglath Shalashiah, as a reference to the same location. In other words, Eglath Shalashiah is a description of Zoar somehow. But in the end, I think we have to admit that no one knows for sure exactly what these words mean in this context. You've got people a whole lot smarter than me that are working on these Bible translations who had a difficult time figuring out exactly what this means here in this place. That's why the NASB guys stuck that word in there trying to clarify it. And I, I don't think they should have done that. I don't think it was necessary. Anyway, Nimrim, meaning basins of clear water, was a stream in northwest Moab flowing into the Jordan River north of the Dead Sea that provided the water for a productive agricultural industry in that area. And if I understand the geography right, this was probably in Reuben's territory of Israel. But according to this prophecy, the waters will become desolate and the vegetation will dry out and wither. The springs feeding this stream were almost certainly stopped up by the invading army, which was a common military tactic during that era. Remember, that's why Hezekiah's tunnel was built, so that they could get the, the Babylonians couldn't stop up the wells out there and keep them from having water inside the walls of Jerusalem, so they built that tunnel. Uh, the picture here in our scripture is one of a green and therefore well-watered and productive area. However, it loses its water, and therefore it dries up, becoming a place lacking in productivity. Some theologians think that 
the Nimrim was a wadi on the southern end of the Dead Sea, but this description seems to represent a spring-fed stream to the north and the subsequent fertility that resulted from that water supply, that spring. As a result of all this devastation, though, the, the people flee south into Edom, carrying whatever they could of their wealth with them. And this wealth is what they've worked for and accumulated over time as a product of their labor. Now, this is a normal human reaction to escaping calamity. People try to take with them the things that matter to them, particularly their wealth. Presumably, people need financial resources to continue living in a new place, often without a means of support, at least for a time. We've probably all seen pictures on TV where there's a war and you see people fleeing the war and you see them walking down the road carrying whatever they can carry on their backs, trying to go to another new place. Verses 8 and 9. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab. Its wail goes as far as Eglaim, and its wailing even to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Demon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon Demon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab, and upon the remnant of the land. So these cries are going to be heard across the land of Moab. Eglaim is in the southwest near the Dead Sea and Be'er Elim is in the northeast where the wilderness begins. So basically what it's saying is from here to here encompasses the whole land. So the whole of the nation will be expressing their grief. Both cry and wail refer to lamentation. The nation's mourning will not quickly come to an end. The word surely here means Indeed, surely and truly, it's a marker of emphasis and strengthening a statement. What God is saying, in other words, he will bring about. When God says surely, he means surely. It's going to happen. One attack will not be the end of it. Others will follow and bring additional distress upon the people in their nation. The text does not actually say what it is that will be added upon Demon. This word woes is not in the text that the NASB added. Whatever it is, it's related to blood in the water, representing the fact that there will be more death. The best translation may be, uh, for I set on demon additions, which is Young's literal translation, without trying to fill in what the text does not say. I think that's the best way to go here, because we don't know exactly what additions mean. It means more attacks, probably. Even after that, those who survive will face more death from a foe depicted as a lion. Now some theologians want to portray this mention of the lion as the tribe of Judah, but there's no indication in the text or in the historical record that Judah attacked Moab at this time. That is an unwarranted imposition into the text based only on the fact that Jacob, or as he became known Israel, described Judah as a lion back in Genesis 49.9 during the blessing of his sons in that chapter. So I don't think that we can say that just because the word lion is used doesn't mean it's referring to Judah or the lion of the tribe of Judah for that matter. Okay, verse, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughters of Zion. Then like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of the Arnon. 
So for some time, Moab had been sending lambs as a tribute to Israel, to the northern kingdom, not to Judah. But they'll break free from that obligation and then offer them to Judah in return for that nation's help in the crisis. And again, another word that's been inserted here by the NSB is the word tribute. It's not in the text. That's what the lamb represents, and the people of the time would have understood it that way, but the text does not specifically identify it as such. In other words, it would have had the same meaning if it just said, send the lamb to the ruler of, of the land. They would have understood it's a tribute lamb. So they didn't say that. They didn't need to put that in there to explain it. So this is not the first time either that Jerusalem has been called the mountain of the daughter of Zion. It's clearly a reference to the capital city of Judah where the temple is located on Mount Zion. In other words, it's in Jerusalem. Selah is a place name meaning rock, but it can also mean rocky country or wilderness. And many theologians identify it with Petra or a nearby area in Edom. But others believe this is a reference to a rocky wilderness close to Moab and further north. The exact location is speculation, but it's obviously in the area. Petra's a little bit, little ways further south here. I mean, it's a pretty good hike to get down to there. I don't think it's referring to that area. The Moabites here were described as birds forced out of the nest with no means of support. They were scattered and homeless, aimlessly fluttering about. The daughters of Moab may be a figurative way of referring to the citizens of Moab and not just some women and children and eventually they gathered at the fords of the Arnon that is to say the northern border of Moab and this place is the closest they could get to Israel without trespassing into Israel without permission now now next Moab asks the king of Judah for refuge in verses 3 and part of 4 give us advice make a decision Cast your shadow at night, like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts. Do not destroy the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. So the Moabites actually describe themselves as outcasts and fugitives. And war does that to people. It runs them out of their homes and leaves them with no means of support. It puts them in a position of relying on others for sustenance and for survival. Until they reach safety, they are in many ways in constant jeopardy. See, once people get out away from their homes, they're subject to wild animals, they're subject to bandits and robbers, they're subject to starvation, they're subject to the elements of the weather. There are many, many dangers people face when they're forced out of their homes like that with nothing really to support them. The word outcast is nadach. Uh, it means to impel drive away or banish, referring to being expelled from a place of residence to another place. It has a sense of forcibly driving or pushing something away. And fugitive is nadad, and it means to expel or chase away, to retreat, to flee, or to depart. It has a sense of fleeing, running, or moving quickly away so as to escape. So these words are good words to describe someone fleeing a war-torn place. So the picture here then is one of a disorganized, frightened, desperate group of people who had to leave their homeland in order to avoid death. They're employing their neighbor to take them in and provide them with a safe place to stay. The fugitives believe the shadow of Judah will cover them, hide them, and protect them from harm. But there's no indication that they were ever allowed to enter Judah. None, 
dispensational theologians who recognize the messianic importance of the following verse and a half, which we haven't got to yet, but we have a second, um, then read that back into these verses and force justification, salvation back into these verses. And that's a spiritualization approach to interpreting the scripture that results in forcing an unwarranted conclusion into it. Uh, Young's position is that Zion's counsel and covering in their shadow is insufficient that Moab needs deliverance, and he's talking about justification and salvation. And that's true. But the question is, is that what this scripture is revealing? And that answer is no. That's reading later New Testament revelation back into this Old Testament prophecy, which is not a practice that we think is correct. And here's what Dr. Young had to say about that. He said, but counsel and right decisions are not sufficient Moab needs deliverance and hence prays that Zion will act. If there is to be deliverance, Moab must be covered with Zion's shadow. Indeed, all who will find deliverance must be covered with Zion's shadow. Once Israel used to flee to Moab, now the picture is completely reversed and Moab flees to Israel. The reference is to a spiritual conversion. Now here's where he gets into spiritualizing the scripture. The reference is to a spiritual conversion of this ancient enemy of God's people. Moab is not to be utterly wiped out. When the enemy comes in upon her, she is to look to God, who is to be found in Zion and to come with supplication for deliverance. Hide me under the shadow of thy wing is the essence of her prayer, as it is also for all those who flee for refuge to Jesus. Now, is Jesus in this scripture? I don't think so. So it's true that the Moabites need justification salvation. That's true for everybody for all time. But that's not the subject of the verse. The subject of this verse is physical deliverance from death at the hands of an invading army. Now the next verse and a half, in five, the last part of five and six, or last part of four and five, the next verse and a half not only have a short-term application of the situation at hand, but they have a definite long-term messianic application to them. And that's what Young recognized here, but then he tried to force it back in the historical context of the verse before. The verses read, For the extortioner has come to an end, destruction has ceased, oppressors have completely disappeared from the land, a throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. Now, certainly, <clears throat> wars have started and ended. Ruthless dictators and evil political systems have come and gone. But in this age, they are always replaced. And at the time of these words, the oppressor had not been defeated and the destruction had not ceased, although that would eventually happen at that point in history. However, when considered in the context of verse 5, there is a meaning and an application beyond this point of time in history. The word end is a face, and it means to be at an end, to be no more, to cease, to fail. It refers to being or to becoming non-existent. And completely, tamam, means to complete, to be complete, to finish, to conclude, to bring an event or activity to a successful end. So these words consent, convey a sense of finality that is yet to take place. 
the word disappeared here was added by the NASB translators along with the Net Bible and the Lexham English Bible to finish the thought of completely, and that's probably appropriate. Other words meaning essentially the same thing were used in other translations rather than disappear, uh, completely disappeared. Other words, completely consumed, completely vanished, and completely perished. So when the kingdom begins, there'll be no longer be any oppression, not only in Israel, but in the world. And if any hint of such a one pops up, the Lord, who will be ruling from the tent of David with a rod of iron, will immediately put a stop to that. Until then, oppressors will be a continual problem in Israel and in Moab and in the world, culminating in the ultimate oppressor, the Antichrist. And we have further indications that this is a long-term prophecy by the use of these words judge and righteousness here. The word judge is shafat. And it means to judge, to govern. It refers to the process of to hear and to be the judge in a legal case. This judge is going to be a faithful judge. And the word faithful is emet, and it means truth or faithfulness. It's frequently connected to justice and righteousness, as it is here. The word justice is mishpat, and it's a legal term meaning a decision or a judgment. It refers to a determination of right and wrong on legal matters. And righteousness, uh, tzedek, means righteousness, honesty, justice, and rightness refers to adherence. It refers to adherence to uh, uh, what is required according to a standard. So what I'm getting at here is these words all refer to justice and doing what is right and true. And no king in either Israel or Judah had ever perfectly displayed these attributes that will characterize and be fulfilled by this future king sitting in the tent of David. Even David didn't fulfill these things perfectly. He had a little issue with a lady named Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, if you recall. All the verbs used in the scripture are perfect, meaning they represent completed action in terms of the future. They represent a prophetic perfect. That is, they are as good as completed, even though they have yet to take place. From the standpoint of the prophet, these things are as good as done because God will accomplish them. Now, at the time, there was obviously a Davidic throne in Jerusalem. However, they had no idea that throne was going to be removed in the near future, necessitating a reestablishment of that throne in the future, the far distant future. It still has not been reestablished to this point. What are we, 2,500, 3,000 years later here? Uh, this future throne will be established in loving kindness, chesed, which is a loyal love, an unfailing kind of love, kindness, or goodness, often used of God's love that is related to faithfulness to his covenant. No Davidic king ever exercised the kind of loving kindness this word implies. Some did more than others in Judah. In Israel, that never happened. They never had a faithful king in the northern kingdom. When Messiah assumes this throne, the full meaning of hesed will be realized, but not until then. And he will perfectly judge, and until then, no Davidic king ever fulfilled that role to perfection. Justice and righteousness will be standard operating position in the, 
standard operating procedure in the kingdom when the king sits on his throne. Now, many theologians, primarily dispensationalists, although there are others, recognize the messianic significance of these verses. Non-dispensational theologians who recognize the messianic truths revealed here usually and erroneously relegate them to the second coming and the beginning of the eternal state rather than to the beginning of the messianic kingdom. Buxbagen, who is a dispensationalist, a messianic Jew, said this, it's not quite clear whether the Moabite delegation in their flattering speech described the actual conditions prevailing in Judah at that time or whether they were speaking of the future. In any case, it is significant that the Moabites use terms which strongly reflect the messianic expectations nurtured by the faithful remnant in Israel and by Isaiah himself centering around the messianic king who will sit upon the throne of David and execute justice and righteousness. And Young, who I quote a little bit, who doesn't quite understand all of this, said this. He related this revelation back to Isaiah 9.6. says, the throne is that of David upon which Christ sits. Now, Fruchtenbaum, who we know is a dispensationalist, also related verse 5 back to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and he said this, as if to reiterate his previous statement, back here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Isaiah declares again that a throne will surely be established on the basis of God's loyal love. The one sitting on the throne will be a member of the house of David who will be characterized by truth. He will be the king and judge, ensuring that justice is carried out a justice springing from the righteousness of the king. The constable also recognized these things. Moab would find security in Zion because extortion and destruction had ceased in Judah and oppressors would no longer dwell there. A merciful, faithful, just, and righteous Davidic king would be judged there. This is clearly a reference to Messiah's rule during the millennium. He says, compare 9, 1 to 6, which... Fruchtenbaum and Young also did, which talks about the birth and reign of the Prince of Peace, and also 11, 1 to 9, which is the righteous reign of the branch. Both of those things we talked about when we got, were in those chapters. Moab then will be one of the nations that comes to the mountain of God to seek his ways. This leap into the eschaton in the oracle extends Moab's desire to find security in Judah in Isaiah's day far into the future. So we have this short-term, long-term sense in this scripture here with Moab seeking refuge in Judah. Because someday the world will find peace and safety and security emanating from that very place with a just and righteous king who exhibits loving kindness to the world. Now the tent of David will need to be reconstructed. In Acts 15:16, James, quoting Amos 9:11, referred to the fallen tent of David that needed to be reestablished. This is the same tent of David that Isaiah referenced. So when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Davidic kingly line was not reestablished. But there is a king who will one day assume that throne. It just hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen until the second coming, of course. And James was talking about Amos 9.11 here. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And there's that little phrase again, in that day, which in this case, in context, 
is referring far into the future, and in fact, we still haven't reached in that day. And then James said this in Acts 15, 16, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will build, rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. So he, meaning Isaiah, looks forward to the day when the oppression which has driven the Moabites into the Hebrews' arms will be brought to an end by that ideal ruler of the Davidic house. Because of his attachment to mercy, faithfulness, justice, and righteousness, oppression will not be able to coexist with him. He will offer a kind of security that will be more permanent than any heretofore known. This vision is clearly messianic as comparison with 9.1-6 and 11.1-9 must show. Isaiah recognizes that Moab's hope is identical with Judah's. Both wait for a king of Israel who will somebody embody those traits which are in fact the character of God. Moab is representative of the nations which will come to the mountain of God to learn his ways, ways which are incarnated in a person who is the true ruler of Israel. And that's a very interesting comment from this guy and why I put it up here is because, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't continue on. Uh, this Oswald guy here is... Uh, not a dispensationalist. He doesn't believe there's going to be a literal thousand-year kingdom and so forth. Yet he recognizes, he puts all this to the second coming, but he recognizes that this is messianic here in Isaiah and looking forward far to the end. Okay, that's all I have for today, so let's close with a prayer. Father, we thank you for this amazing book we call the Bible, the Word of God. We thank you that we're able to study it and learn from it. We thank you for this amazing prophet, Isaiah, who has so much to reveal to us concerning uh, your plan for history, concerning Israel, concerning the future. It's just an incredible book, and, and we, are, we are blessed to be able to stand here today and study it and learn about it and to uh, broaden our knowledge of who you are and what you plan for world history concerning Israel and the church and all of the unsaved people and so forth. It's all in this book. It's just incredible. Father, I pray once again your blessing on everybody in this room and on everybody in our body and everybody who's listening that uh, you would bless them and keep them in the coming week. I pray for our pastor and his family as they travel back and forth until they arrive here permanently for their safety and their well-being and for your blessing on their lives and on their ministry. I pray for your blessing on his wife and on his children as they uh, walk this walk with him as, as, as the man of God in Fredericksburg Bible Church. I pray for our elders and our deacons that we lead well and that we serve well. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a light in this community to biblical truth, that people will be drawn to it and therefore hear the gospel of the grace of God that is provided to us through Jesus Christ who died on that cross 2,000 years ago for the sin of the world. We thank you for all these things today, Lord, and we thank you for your presence with us in this house as we worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.